And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Alex Otak, standing in for Dana this week. And this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. So right now, the only thing that surrounds us are olive trees. And it really feels like it's the only thing you see until you can't see anything else. This is Sara Ben-Ramdan showing producer Zaina Dawida around her family farm, where the olive trees stretch in a checkered pattern all the way to the horizon. So the soil, this one is quite sandy. Of course, it can get green if it rains, which we hope it will rain. Um, but right now, it hasn't rained so much, so it's mostly beige-colored sand. And then you've got trees, which respectively have quite a big trunk because they're old. And then the branches sort of surround the trunk and then fall back to cover it. As we walk up to this like tree in front of us, how do you know when it's ready to be picked? So um, some people think some olives are green and some olives are black and that there might be two varieties. In fact, there are thousands of varieties across the Mediterranean region. And all of those olives are green and then turn black as they ripen. So you can pick them when, they, when they're green or you could pick them when they're black, depending on what type of oil you want to produce. Sara tried to find a tree that was just the right amount of ripe perfect for the kind of oil that she's trying to make. Oh, I feel like here, see here, it's a, a mixture. This is like an ideal tree to harvest <laughs> at this point in time. So we've got light green, we've got like pastel purple, deeper purple. It's exactly the color I'm looking for. It's olive harvesting season around the Mediterranean from November to January. And in one North African country, this is nothing new. In fact, olives have been harvested here for thousands and thousands of years. Olive trees have been cultivated here in Tunisia ever since the Phoenicians came here. And then Romans took over the Arabs and then the French. So it has always been a part of our culture. While northern Mediterranean countries like Italy and Greece prepare for another profitable harvest of their celebrated olive oil, Tunisia will find themselves and their olive oil largely invisible, even though their economy depends on it. I think, unfortunately, we live in a very cynical world, you know, where some people have more power than others. What is happening now is just like the, the continuation that what was happening before. Our olive oil 
is completely stripped out of its context. And, you know, when you have a lack of transparency, obviously at some point there is going to be exploitation happening. When you think of olive oil, like good olive oil, what comes to mind is probably those fancy Italian bottles you always buy at your local supermarket, or the Greek brand that you only get at that artisanal deli that you window shop at. But chances are, the best olive oil you've ever had was actually Tunisian, even if you didn't know it. Today on Kerning Cultures, the pressing story of Tunisian olive oil. Producer Zena Dawida takes it from here. Olive oil in my family has like magical properties. It's kind of of sacred food. Earlier this month, I hopped on the tube in London and went to meet Buthena bin Salem. Buthena is a Tunisian French chef who's also based in London, and she's the mastermind behind Babel de Bee, a supper club celebrating Tunisian food. In a lot of parts of Tunisia, there is a lot of magic around food, and there is a lot of rituals around food. So I really grew up in a world where food was pretty much everything to us. is an identity. It's where we gather to celebrate and we gather to mourn as well. Um, it has a very, a very big importance to me because it's also my heritage. You could really see this in her home. There was fresh fruit on every table, food-related posters and art everywhere, uh, a wall calendar celebrating seasonal produce, crates of Jordan-preserved vegetables in the living room, and a kitchen that was full of life and color. She offered me a drink when I arrived, but there was another liquid I was there to speak to her about. Do you remember the first time you had olive oil or the first time you, you know, used olive oil in one way or another? Oh my God, I was born into it. I think my first souvenir of olive oil is not really eating it, but it's playing in my grandfather's olive groves. And I think when I was old enough, it was really exciting because I could have sleepovers at my grandfather's farm and you wake up around 4 a.m. in the morning and prepare everything. And I was allowed to go with the woman to harvest. You mentioned that your grandma uses olive oil in like all aspects of her life. Can you give us a couple examples of, of what else she would use olive oil for? Oh. So my auntie, so her daughters and her daughters-in-law, when they got pregnant and then we are close to that due date, it was so fun. She would come and make sure they would drink a tiny shot of pure olive oil because in her mind, it would help the baby to come out, like to slide, <laughs> slide out of the vagina, like easy. And every time one of her grandchildren, girls, the girls, would have her period, she will take olive oil and she would put like, she would like put just a touch in the middle of the eyes here. So the idea is that we won't have painful um, we won't have painful periods. Did it ever work? I never worked. <laughs> it never... Many families in Tunisia share similar childhood memories with their own rituals and traditions that celebrate olive oil. 
Over half of the country's land is used for agricultural production, and a third of that is planted with olive trees. But the magic and the rituals around olive oil aren't really accessible to everyone. In Tunisia, people cannot consume what they produce because they cannot afford it. It is so expensive today that most of the Tunisians consume a very poor quality oil that we call Zit al-Hakim, which is like we call translate to government oil. This government oil is a low-quality mixture of other oils, such as soybean and palm oil, that are imported from abroad to serve the local market. I couldn't understand why Tunisians would use Zit al-Hakim when they produce olive oil themselves. And they're not just a small producer either. I mean, Tunisia is the largest exporter of organic, hand-harvested olive oil. And yet, no one knows about it. According to most sources, Tunisia is one of the world's largest suppliers of olive oil. But I found it very strange that I'd never seen a bottle of Tunisian olive oil, like on the shelves or at any stores. It was never something I came across or even read on a label. I agree with you. That is, that is insane um, that a country that exports 90% of its national production is completely, I mean, we don't know about it. No one knows about it. And um, when I started to do my supper clubs and I would put olive oil on the table, as we do in Tunisia, you know, it's our, our antipasti. And um, they're surprised that it comes from Tunisia. They didn't know. And they're surprised that it is so good. And I told them, I tell them, like this fancy oil you buy on the shelves here uh, from Greece or Spain or Italy, it is probably from Tunisia. You probably, like most of the people who will listen to the podcast, they probably, you probably have already eaten, tried, bought olive, I mean, olive oil from Tunisia, but you don't know because there is no mention of origins of this. How could a country that is so reliant on one product be completely invisible? To figure this out, I wanted to go there myself. Hi, um, I just wanted your input slash And planning this trip was a bit of a mess because harvest, obviously you can't predict when the olives are going to be ready to be harvested. So we had to last minute move flights and move things around because... The harvest was actually coming early that year, but there were no flights that were coming early. <laughs> the harvest is going to start a week early so that they're going to start this. So, way. yeah, so the harvest came earlier and I had to very frantically move my flights to like a day or two from that day. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just landed at the Airport. I flew to Tunis and I went straight from the airport onto a three-hour car journey east of Tunis, along the coast, to a small city called Mahdeya. So basically what really caught my attention on the journey there was, even though it was getting dark on our trip, everywhere you're looking, on the left and the right-hand side of the main sort of highway that we were driving on, were olive trees. It was just rows and rows and rows of olive trees. You know that Brother Bear scene? I don't know if you've ever watched Brother Bear. So you want to play I Spy? Mm, all right. Okay. I'll go first. Okay. 
I spy something green. Tree? Oh. Okay, I spy something tall. Tree. Okay. Olives have been cultivated in Tunisia for ages. The country has a 2,500-year-old tree that was still producing olives. In the ancient world, Tunisia was often described as Rome's breadbasket. And when I spoke to Buthena, she reminded me that for many years, France considered Tunisia as basically the same thing. Well, let's go back to a few centuries ago. Um, 1881. Tunisia became a French protectorate. Another word for colonization, right? And olive oil is such a lucrative commodity. So what uh, France did is that uh, it imposed a export-oriented monoculture production of olive oil. France brought their colonial fantasies of a renewed North African breadbasket to Tunisia. And what went from small family farms like Buthena's family turned into large landowners producing olives, among other fruit and veg, directly for export. After the independence in 1956, instead of promoting and leading a policy of food sovereignty, the Tunisian state actually encouraged an intensive, export-oriented olive production. The Republic of Tunisia, not yet a week old, So it created a situation where a few people, a few oligarchs, really benefited from from this policy. The system has remained the same since, with Tunisia continuing to be Europe's breadbasket. Or in this case, olive oil bottle. After a few more hours in the car, I finally arrived to Mahdeya. Mahdeya is a small city along the coast of Tunisia. And when I say coastal, I mean right on the coast. As soon as I got out of the car, I could smell the sea salt and I could hear the waves crashing against the walls of the houses. This city was the hometown of the person I was here to see, Sara bin Romdan. When COVID-19 hit, Sara was living in Paris, working as a journalist. The isolation and anxiety got to her like it did to many of us, and she looked for a chance to escape, even just for a few weeks. I was able to come here for my summer holiday, like every year. Sara came to Mahdeya to relax and unwind, and I could totally see why she would. It's a picture-perfect Mediterranean town, and I felt myself instantly relaxing as soon as I arrived. Her family has had a home in Mahdeya for decades, And it's basically so that they could be close to their olive estates in a nearby town. Sara told me about it as we drove around. How old is your family's estate like? Um, My family has had it for a century-ish. So I I, I can't remember the the right date, but it's a very early uh, 20th century. More than five generations of her family have tended to the estates, harvesting olives every single year. For example, my great-grandfather and his father and his grandfather uh, exported to the states as early as in the 19th century. 
uh, and one prices there. But then I'd say roughly around the 50s, 60s, my family uh, stopped producing olive oil um, for different reasons, but mostly because people left this region, uh, moved on with their lives, I guess. They decided to commit to other careers or industries. Something about being back near the olive trees felt magical for Sara. She felt like it gave her some sort of inner purpose. I realized, I mean, I feel happy in this place that is sunny and warm and reminds me of like happy memories of uh, joy with my family and my cousins. And so she decided to stick around for a while. And while she was there, and as a born and bred foodie, she started looking into how her family's olive estates were managed and where the olives go. Although the harvest was collected every year, the olives hadn't been pressed by her family since her grandfather was in charge. She found out instead that the olives that are harvested every year are then sold to another producer. There is a series of middlemen in the supply chain. These middlemen are the key to the story. They explain why I couldn't find any Tunisian olive oil on the shelves at my local supermarket or anywhere else for that matter. And they found out that the biggest bucks could be made not by exporting Tunisian olive oil as a made-in-Tunisia product, but rather to sell it to another series of middlemen, olive oil manufacturers in Europe. Most olive oils that you find abroad, like in northern countries, is Tunisian olive oil that was blended to other oils and olive oils from different countries, from different seasons sometimes as well. They are sold without any mention of the Tunisian origin or any origin, generally speaking. The oil is blended, making Tunisia invisible in the olive oil industry. The middlemen act as conduits between small producers and exporters, and they help these big companies buy Tunisian olive oil for very cheap costs. It is bought at a super cheap price by the big industrial players that basically profit off of Tunisia's weaker economy to have cheap labor and cheap olive oil and resell it in Europe under European brand names with no mention of its origins and with no context. This idea drove Sara crazy, that a year's worth of work, a lifetime's worth of work for many generations of families, would be written off as a line in some big European company's budget with no reference at all to the toil and trouble Tunisian farmers went through to produce it. And so I realized that the way Tunisian olive oil was being produced and marketed and exported was unfair. And I started like thinking and connecting the dots and I was like, well, we have, you know, olive estates that we've had for hundreds of years, for like generations that we unfortunately are not, in my opinion, at least honoring. And so I told my dad, listen, I think I want to launch an olive oil brand from our estate. And I was like, well, this is it. This is basically a project that can be the vessel for all of those things. And it happens to be on our family estate in the countryside of Mehdeya, our family son of origin. Like, here is the answer. It's literally just here. Like, why should I look for answers abroad and so far away from me when 
I can be happy and fulfilled here. And so, with a plan of action, Sara looked to revolutionize the olive oil industry in Tunisia. And to do that, she needed to harvest some olives. That's right after this break. We're back. It's 2022, and Sara's been producing olive oil for two years. I went to visit her in November, right as her third harvest began. I followed the entire process with her to learn how she's hoping to change the way Tunisian olive oil is seen in the world. Um, so we're almost um, arriving to Boutadi, and you'll see when we get there, I always get this feeling of arriving at the end of the world, if that makes sense. It did make sense. In front of us, the road felt like it was carved into the olive farms, that the trees were there millennia before we were. We got out of the car and started walking further into the field. Sara explained to me that the estate, which was owned by her extended family, was split into little sections. And so this parcel is called Al Makina because it's next to the Makina, which in colloquial Tunisian means the mill. So our old mill. And it's where I am harvesting this season. As we walk towards her section, or what she calls a parcel, I noticed that it was mostly women working on the land. They had these wide, dark green nets that they were laying out on the ground around each tree in the sand, and wooden ladders propped open so they could climb them. And as we walked over, everyone greeted me with open arms. I sat down while they were having their lunch break, and they told me all about the olive trees around us. These women were parts of generations of their families that have worked on similar olive farms. And speaking to them, I realized just how much the olive tree and olive oil means to them. One of them explained to me how in religious scriptures, the olive tree is said to cry if you hit it with a stick or shake it very hard. So it's important to take care when harvesting to keep the tree happy. They prayed to God that the trees will continue to be as strong as they were. And they were worried that less rainfall meant less of a harvest each year. Sara works to keep their traditional practices alive and takes care of the trees as part of the process. ممكن يا منيرة تشرحي لي انت بتعملي ايه دلوقتي؟ الاساس باش نحافظ على الكابت الزيتون وعلى الشجرة في نفس الوقت. طريقة تقليدية. وبتستخدمي ايه؟ بستخدم المشط هذا. منيرة one of the workers showed me how she used a plastic rake similar to the one you'd find kids using at the beach to brush the olives off of the trees. By doing this, they can make sure not to break any branches and avoid harming the olives or the tree as part of the process. 
تبقى كعبه تبقى فريشكا ونضيفه واحد كل شيء مش باش الزيتون بتاعها جيبي Sara's entire harvest was built around tradition. She cares deeply about her olive oil and makes sure that not even eight hours pass between when she picks the olives and when she presses them. And so, after a long day at the farm, we drove over to the olive mill. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Sara, and we're at the mill. <laughs> The mill was a giant single room that looked like a warehouse. It was a communal mill, used by many farms around the town, and so hundreds of crates of olives were stacked up outside. It looks more like uh, a lab type of process than like something that is really artisanal, I'd say. But this is how olives are crushed in 2022. It looked more like a factory with these giant stainless steel machines that were taking the olives from one part of the process to the next. And the process consists of different steps. The first one being bringing the olives to the mill. And then once they get here, they go through a process where all the remaining leaves are um, put on the side and then they get washed with water And then they get crushed. And then we have a malaxation process where it turns into a paste until it goes through a uh, centrifuge yes, process. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we split the water from the oil and we get the oil. The oil that came out was this like incredible, almost neon green. It looked something like Mountain Dew. I mean, that's that's how green it was. But because it doesn't really have a, a long shelf life, usually the oil gets filtered after, which gives it this golden, shiny appearance. Sara closely oversaw basically every step of the process herself. So right now we're uh, we're at the mill and Sara's picking out leaves from the olives as they get washed and separated so that she can make sure no leaves get pressed alongside the olives. What I thought would be an hour or two of work and back in bed by midnight ended up being a much longer affair than I expected. So some days we start earlier, some days we start like later, depending on when the olives arrive, whether there are other people at the mill and we need to wait for them to finish. Now it's 10.30. And we're going to be here for a few hours until everything's uh, pressed. Oh, we're officially an hour five at the mint. It's currently 3.30 a.m. I'm crashing. My body is dying. I'm sitting in the back of the car while Sara is outside um, finishing things up and packing things up and working with the workers to make sure all of the olive oil is packed correctly. <sighs> I couldn't understand why we were still here at 3 a.m. Why does the process for you start so late in the evening compared to others? Um, we, we, we start so late at the mill because um, I want to make sure I can cold press my olives. And for that to happen, the machine's temperatures must be low. 
For olives to be considered cold-pressed, you might have seen that on the label of some fancier olive oils at your supermarket, the olives need to be pressed at a temperature below 27 degrees Celsius. Um, and it's not the case during the day. And the reason for that is because most people in Tunisia, unfortunately, uh, press their olives at a high temperature. The higher your temperature, the more juice is squeezed out of the olive. You get more bang for your buck. But in doing so, the quality of the olive oil is totally destroyed. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. And that's because within the current state of the olive oil trade, Tunisian olive oil is sold in bulk at a cheap price. Not only is it you know, unfair in terms of social justice, but it has also had negative consequences on the reputation of Tunisian olive oil. And that's exactly what Sara's trying to change. By exporting her olive oil as made in Tunisia olive oil, using traditional techniques to preserve the quality and flavor of the olives, she's hoping to shed light on the incredible flavors and value of Tunisian olive oil. We export our olive oil to other people in a way that is not empowering us. And then our people are leaving because they don't feel empowered. We're like everything that is that belongs to us is like erased in a way that to me, like reclaiming this product and 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 feeling so proud about it and and sharing stories about it really is is about resilience and saying no, like we will continue to exist and our culture is rich and deserves to be celebrated and appreciated. Sara has a lot of challenges around her harvest. Trying to export directly to consumers and businesses is not easy, and she faces many hurdles, particularly around exporting. I love the way Sara described it to me as we sat outside at 2am, waiting for the last of the olives to be pressed. It feels like giving birth It's a moment that I don't want to miss because despite the fact that I'm tired, it's also a beautiful moment. And it's beautiful because I'm tired and I put so much energy into it. I think, I mean, I've never given birth, but you're so tired when you give birth, right? But it's beautiful. And I feel like it's the same. There's so much energy and effort that I put into this, but it's because I have so much emotion in the process as well. After a long day's work, I finally got to try Tunisia's famous olive oil. What's the like, best way to taste olive oil? If you really want to taste an olive oil the legit way, you have to do it in like a small tainted glass um, because you don't want the color to influence your perception of the taste. Sometimes people will think, oh, it's green, so it's going to taste so intense. But you can have a green colored oil that is not so intense, and a golden-colored olive oil that can be. Sara grabbed some spoons and helped me figure out exactly what to taste for. Now, this variety, often the flavor profile is almond, it can be nutty, or when it's harvested early-ish, it also can feel a bit grassy. It was then time to try yesterday's harvest. And I wanted to do it as professionally as possible. You're meant to like swallow the sip and then get some air inside of your mouth and like do a weird thing. (laughs) 
Don't, don't make fun of me. Wait, it should be something like... That, look, that looked expertly done. <laughs> that looked like Romy yesterday. So yeah, to me, this one is, is, is a soft, soft green almond. Because I only traveled to Tunisia with a backpack, I couldn't bring any of Sara's olive oil back home with me. And I was worried I'd never find good olive oil again. So I asked Bethena back in London for some help. The only thing I could say is that try as many as you can. Don't go just for one brand because the branding is so beautiful and the price is so high that you think, oh, this, should, this is probably the best. That's not true, actually. I would say if you really had to choose, go for small producers. Looking for single origin olive oils is the way to go. Less of a chance of it being blended, which means you can almost guarantee the quality. And good quality olive oil is something every household should have. Because, you know, it's such a gift from nature and God, that's what they say, that you should always keep a tiny bit of olive oil so you make sure that your kitchen is always full of, of food. And the idea is that we are blessed by this really very special, powerful olives and olive oil. This episode was produced by Zena Doidar and edited by Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri and sound design and mixing was by Yusuf Doazu. Our team also includes Nadine Shaker and Finbar Anderson. If you have any stories of your own about family traditions or rituals that involve olive oil, send a voice note to Zena. She's at zena at curlingcultures.com or over on our Instagram, which is at curlingcultures. A huge, huge thank you to everyone who spoke to me for this story. Thank you to Buthena bin Selim for the lovely conversations and delicious olive oil. You can follow all her incredibly mouth-watering food adventures at buthania.b.selim on Instagram. And thank you especially to Sara bin Ramdan for opening your home and life to me for a few days. You can find her olive oil, Kaya Olive Oil, that's spelled K-A-I-A, online at World of Kaya on Instagram and worldofkaya.com. She's been working incredibly hard to get this season's harvest out, and she's just released some beautiful unfiltered olive oil on her website. We squeezed in our interviews throughout the busy harvest schedule, which meant that we were often recording at weird times, like 2.30 a.m. at the mill. It led to conversations like this. When I started thinking about quitting my job to produce an olive oil from the family estate, it's weird because it was a mixture of like, I have issues with pronouncing this word, so let me tell you. What is it? Serendipity? Uh, How is it? Oh my god, now I'm gonna. <laughs> I, okay, Sarah, Sarah Pen. Oh my god, said there. Serendipity. Oh, well, let's Google it. <laughs> I feel like it's gonna be stuck in my head now. Wait. Serendipity. Okay, how to pronounce it? Serendipity. I think. Serendipity. Yeah, that sounds right. Serendipity.
Um, so yeah, when I started thinking about you know quitting my job and, and producing an olive oil from our family estate, it really felt like a mixture of serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> Not this. I should. I should. I shouldn't use this no, word. No, Thank you again. We'll be back next week with a new episode. It's the first episode in a four-part series, uh, one we've been working on for ages. We're really excited about it, and there'll be a bonus episode on olive oil later in the season. Thanks for listening. <laughs>